Cotunes Podcast is here once again with Matt Munoz, and on this episode, we proudly welcome East LA's finest and indeed an American treasure, Los Lobos. Many of you listeners may only know them from the movie and soundtrack to La Bamba, but hold on, that's only one shot of tequila in their long and creative musical careers. High school homies at Garfield High in East Los, making noise in the garage, then hitting the Mexican restaurant circuit, and then diving into the middle of the Hollywood punk rock mosh pit with traditional Mexican music. It's wild vatos. If you were around during the 80s, you'll remember the classic 1984 How Will the Wolf Survive, an album so good, Rolling Stone named Los Lobos Band of the Year alongside Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Talk about born in the USA, Los Lobos have always maintained their integrity by staying true to their Latino roots and respect for the elements that have helped shape who they are. Rock and roll, Tex-Mex, folklorico, and blues. Their timeless music is a soundtrack to the American landscape and a source of inspiration to artists everywhere. It doesn't get any more original than this. One of my all-time, time, time favorite bands. Here is Luis Perez of Los Lobos on Bakotunes Podcast, episode 56, brought to you by Bakotopia.com. Hi, Matt. Louis Pettis from Los Lobos. Well, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm home, and uh, that's always kind of nice. We've been working a whole bunch. It's good to be home for just a little piece of change here for a few days. We, we got home, uh, let's see, Monday. And we've got, you know, a few days and then head back out for, for a bit. And it's been like this for, for uh, uh, most of the summer. Yeah, and most, most of your lives. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly always, you know, in the back of my mind, you know. <laughs> it's, just, what's one, it's the endless tour. It keeps yeah, going. <laughs> and this year was, man, uh, we, we started this year real early. We started in February with the Nikusi Tour of the U.S. And uh, that brought us to like around April and then we took a little bit of a break and then we went to Europe for like three and a half weeks and we came back and you know by June 1st it felt like it was time to hang the Christmas lights up but <laughs> six more months to go I find myself you know complaining about having to get up at uh, uh, 3.45 in the morning to drive an hour and a half to an airport to make like two connections and then having to drive you know another two hours to a yeah. gig you know I'll find myself you know kind of moaning and groaning and then I just got to remember wait a second Louis man you got the best job in the world what are you complaining about? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you got the best attitude I hear you know you, you figure it out I think there's a lot of musicians out there that need to talk to you about that <laughs> oh yeah yeah it, it's uh, the way I look at it is uh, the two hours on stage are the are, that's what it's all about it's the other 22 hours that beats the heck out of you but you know it beats hot mopping the early days your high school jam and as students at uh, garfield high school east la you know, how did you eventually all come together for the earliest incarnations of los lobos uh we all met in high school we were friends before we ever were musicians together well you, you know the dynamic you're out of high school you're still living at home three square meals <laughs> uh you know mamacita of course is making like some killer food you know? yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so everything's fake everything's kind of cool and you get time on your hands and the natural progression of things would to be start to play music together. David and I played in a kind of garage rock band. Conrad had a band. Caesar had this like 15-piece soul band, you know, and, uh, wow. and but we were friends and hanging out together during the day and whatever, and then, you know, come the weekend or rehearsal or evening rehearsals with our bands, you know, we kind of disappeared for a while, but then, you know, we'd find ourselves back in the backyard just hanging, hanging out. Which of you was the most instrumental in getting you guys together? Was there one person who said, you know, why don't we just all get together? I think what it was, since we're all kind of hanging together anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and, and this is the, and this is the, the, you know, true story. We're all hanging out together. One of our mom's birthday 
and we just figured, you know, why don't we learn a couple of Mexican songs to play? Mañanitas are like at five in the morning. We're up anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, pulled out the records out of our folks' record collection. We were rock and roll guys. So we sat there and we tried to learn them, and we realized that, man, it's not easy. You know, we always took it for granted. And that was just so, so fascinating to us as musicians that we just dove into it. And yeah. it got to a point that we were learning these songs. We were playing a couple little local gigs, you know, little tariadas at a park or at yeah. a BFW hall or something. And, and uh, it finally got to a point when we had to make a decision. If we wanted to do this full time, it started to actually collide with, with the bands who we were playing with. I think Caesar was the last one to disband his group. And, uh, and we just started doing this full time. And that's really the, the how this started. Mexican-American musicians, they have the obvious influence by sounds from both sides of the border, and you're talking about trying to put together Las Mañanitas. How, was, how did the band decide, well, we're just going to we're gonna start leaning more towards rock, or we're going to lean towards more traditional Mexican? It was all feel from the very beginning. Well, it started as a challenge, you know. You know Mexican music at that point, we became aware of it. We, we realized how difficult it was to play, and, and it went beyond that. You know, first it was, you know, the rancheras and mariachi music, then we discovered uh, music from Veracruz, Jarocho music, Huastec, you know all of this stuff and we and we spent 10 years we put away the the amp and the strats and we just said you know this is all we did you know we collected Mexican instruments we asked uh, older musicians how they were played and uh, and we we just completely immersed ourselves in in, in musica folklorica for 10 years and then it just got to a, to a point here we are out of high school fast forward 10 years we're still you know doing this but our lives are getting a little more complicated we've got some kids we've got we're, we're married there's a responsibility to go along with that and all along keeping our, our main focus and our commitment to playing music together uh, things got you know, kind of kind of tough but everybody all our families are supported you know I think they recognize that there was something very special going on and so uh, it was worth the sacrifice even though it got difficult but toward the, the end of the 70s till about 1980 uh, we found ourselves playing like in a Mexican restaurant because we needed to make an income mm -hmm. you know? And, and we we we, uh, we had started off wanting to kind of redefine what most people perceived as Mexican music, which is oh you know you know the guys with the the trumpets and all that. He goes, well, that's just mariachi music. We were exposing all this music that really was from you know regional Mexican yeah. music that a lot of people never heard, and that's what we were doing. Then we found ourselves ten years later in a Mexican restaurant doing exactly what we we were opposed to from the beginning, doing the Cuando Caliente el Sol and all the, the, the typical kind of stuff. Standards, yeah. And it was driving, driving us crazy. Right? <laughs> so we started to get involved in um, Tex-Mex music. David picked up an accordion and started to fool with that. Susan got a bajo sesto, and, you know, we dusted off the drum kit, and we said, okay, uh, Lou, Lou, you be the drummer. Okay. You know, it was just real rock kind of aesthetic, you know? Because, you know, if you look at a, at a Norteño band, it's kind of like a rock band. Drums, bass, guitar, accordion, instead of a, you know, a big guitar or whatever. But so it was easy for us to get back into rock and roll again. Of course, we got so damn loud that we got fired from the Mexican restaurant we were playing at. Found ourselves back in the garage again. Okay, now what do we do? We got to find ourselves a gig. And we started playing, you know, you know weddings and whatever was going on on the weekend. And parallel to, to that, there was a scene happening in, in Hollywood. It was, you know, punk rock. So Let's take music back, and, and out of that scene, there was uh, the Roots revival with bands like the Blasters, and so we packed up the van and we made the trip across the LA River. I've heard the infamous story of performing with the Plugs oh, in yeah. Public Image. Right. Um, now, did you know Tito Lariva and those guys from from around the area, and that's how you guys no, got? No, no, we we actually 
before Los Olivos ever packed up the van and crossed the river, David and myself were heading over there to check out bands. The punk rock thing was just kind of just really raw and exciting, and, and we had a friend who was like way into it, so we jumped into his Volkswagen bug and we go check out bands like The Plugs, Fear, and Circle Jerks, and all that stuff. And it was cool, you know, it was all packed into these little basements of Chinese restaurants in Hollywood or something, you know. And it was exciting, it was an exciting scene. Then we'd come back across the river, and then we'd play our, our wedding or whatever we were doing, you know. One of those trips over there, you know, we, we heard a band called The Blasters, and we'd go like, wait a second, there's something different here, you know. There's, it was, they were playing jump blues and rockabilly, and then there was other rockabilly bands starting to come up, these uh, cowpunk bands were playing like, like a, you know, like a country punk rock kind of thing going yeah. on, and, and so that Roots thing started to, to make its way into the, the scene over there, and young bands from East LA, the punk rock bands, that used to, you know, make regular trips out there, and mm-hmm. and this made sense to us. We went and we heard the blasters and we met them and we talked to them and they said hey we're from like the east side too we're from downey and we, we've got to be friends with them and finally they invited us to uh, to uh, open a show for them at the at the whiskey go which is now kind of a legendary show because oh, we, yeah. we opened for them and the, the whole scene kind of opened up to us dito i had met on one of those trips to hollywood and to this day you know i've never asked him and i you know i don't even know if i wanted you know put him on the spot but, you know I've, I've always wanted to ask him hey tito you know, when you called me up and said, hey, does your band want to open up for public image? We're, we're doing the show. Were you kind of setting us up? <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that this was a, a weird thing and we were going to go up there and play traditional Mexican music and not get pelted with... Uh, with <laughs> Look, they throw you out there to the wolves. No yeah. pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> but I've never asked them that. And I've always kind of just left it alone, you know? Because we did, in fact, go out there, and we did, in fact, get everything that they could get their hands on thrown at us. But for us, you know, I, you know, most bands would have just ran back to their very provincial, safe little neighborhood in East yeah. L.A. and said, yeah, I'm never going to do that again. But no, not for us, you know? We, we, we came back, and we, we were ready to go back and get some more, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, and all that stuff, you know, people are throwing stuff in you, and you're spitting at you. I mean, yeah. you know, what is going through your heads? Are you like, you know, how can you describe that feeling? It's like, a, a, a bungee jump. It's like this incredible rush of, of adrenaline and this 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 rush of like fear and so fucking exciting. You can't help. Yeah. It, you know? We had uh, we had brought. This is like a big deal. Hey, we're playing this big show, right? And we brought like our wives and somebody brought like a dia or something with you know. <laughs> and they were like backstage, and we we literally ran off as soon as they started throwing like the real serious projectiles. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we we ran off. We lasted like about eight minutes out there. We we literally ran off there as things really, you know, the dangerous things started flying. Went to the backstage area, and our family was in like tears. Man. Tears. It was like this is the worst thing that ever could happen. And we could have the we had these silly, weird grins on our face. We're like, wow, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Let's do it again, damn it, you know? And they, they you know, they couldn't they couldn't figure out what the hell we were doing. How old were you guys at that time? We, we made the decision to become rock, rock stars as adults. We were like, uh, I don't know, late 20s maybe? Did you get to meet John Lydon at no, that show? No, there was a very, you know, kind of... And with something like we experienced when we toured with The Clash, too. This almost like, you know, this 
this, uh, I don't even call it a veil of security. It's almost like they're, they're holed up in their dressing room and, or in their bus or something, and they don't come out until it's time to play. So, you know, we never did see him. You met Steve Berlin through the Blasters. Right. Did you ask Steve Berlin to join, or did he just jump in the band when he started getting involved with more of the production end of things? Yeah, I think we left a window open. He just jumped in the van one day as we were driving through Hollywood. I mean, there'd be some nights at the Blasters we'd be playing, and we'd be going on like 1 a.m. somewhere, and he'd show up just, it was always amazing because... We said, well, where's Steve? Where's Steve? Where's Steve? Well, I guess maybe he's not going to make it. Okay, cool. We go up on stage, and just before we're ready to hit the first note, it just added a, a perfect element, you know, component to what we were doing at the time. Ironically, you know, to, for the for the Tex-Mex music, he had never heard that stuff. He never didn't know how to play it or anything, and he was learning these uh, accordion riffs, you know. Uh, Steve would come over, and, and I'd watch Steve and, and Dave, you know, working out the parts on, on like, on Selma or something, you know, and, and these parts aren't easy. They're good. And he's playing this, these riffs and, and struggling with it. And, you know, I mean, this is a guy who's a Coltrane. And, you know, here we are, you know, you know, our fingers are, are, are used to playing, you know, you know, Crossroads or some Zeppelin tune or something. And here we are trying to learn uh, requinto parts for some, you know, Mexican song. And we're struggling with it. That's what was so fascinating for us when we discovered Mexico, rediscovered Mexican music. Let's go right into um, when you got hooked up with Slash Records. You put out the singles, the EP, and the Time to Dance. Yeah. Then How Will the Wolf Survive comes out in 84. Reading about you in Rolling Stone is how I discovered you in high school. And they're going crazy over Los Lobos. I mean, I'm looking at fellow Chicanos in there being considered, you know, the greatest rock and roll band of the time at that moment in 84. And there you are with Prince, Bruce Springsteen, R.E.M. How did you guys handle all that attention? <laughs> It was an amazing time. It was really an amazing time. With the, with the EP alone, you know, we were touring out of a, a, a 1978 Dodge van or something like that. I don't know what it was. Getting like one motel room and all sneaking in there, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and just, we, we were in New Orleans, Louisiana, when we got phone call in the morning. And we literally were all sleeping in one hotel room. We'd take the beds apart. Somebody would, then do a toy cost. Who's going to sleep on the box ring? Who's going to sleep on the mattress? And we get a phone call from our publicist said, oh, um, you won a Grammy. And it's just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so here we are jumping around. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's just an amazing thing. Yeah. I mean, how does stuff happen? You know? Uh, yeah. We, we, um, we put out that record and we were like at the top of the, the critics, critics polls, polls and everywhere. And, and, you know, Rolling Stone named this band of the year tied with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Bank. I mean, how does this stuff happen? You yeah. guys are the real American experience. So just pick up a Los Lobos record, close your eyes, and that's what it is. Yeah, well, you know, um, it's true, because we're uh, an example of, of a very seamless combination of being American being Mexican. It's very seamless, you know. Uh, it's very natural, and that that's what, it, what it's supposed to be. La Bamba. Got to talk about La Bamba, because oh, that yeah. just kind of blew the roof off of everybody. I think I was I've watched documentaries, and a lot of people thought that Los Lobos wrote La Bamba. They didn't even know anything about Richie Valens. They always they yeah. thought it was Los Lobos. But how was that working with Luis Valdez and you know getting the blessing from the Valens family and you know once again you guys are chosen to be the sound. I mean smack dab right in the eighties of an yeah, yeah. important time for especially and Latinos again too with that movie. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it we're incredibly you know of course without saying honored to be part of that. Uh, we never had a clue that it was going to be as huge as it was. 
even I, even I don't think the, the motion picture, they even expected it to be a, a blockbuster hit that it was. It just happened at the right time, you know. It, it, was, a, it was really um, a, an American story. It touched a lot of people. And you guys are so closely connected to that. You guys almost have the same story. Of course, you guys, thank God, are still alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think about it every time I get into a small airplane, right? Don't wear a talisman. <laughs> yeah. do, you still, do you guys still enjoy playing La Bamba today? You know, it, it, we did go through a period where, where of course, like, like I'm sure Jimi Hendrix, you know, felt the same way about Foxy Lady for a while. Jim Morrison and the Doors, you know, Light My Fire. It's it just, there's the one song that everybody is, is remembered for. Yeah, I think we went through that. We mm-hmm. went through, through a little bit of a, an identity crisis. Yeah. And what did we do, you know? The follow-up to that was La Pisola del Corazón. Yeah. People how, thought we were crazy. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. How was the response to the, when you went to the label with that? Oh, they thought we were out of our minds. But uh, we we went and we talked to Lenny Warren, who was president of the company, who has been, he was like our A&R guy, you know. We were able to go knock on the door and walk in and talk to him anytime he wanted. And a real music guy, producer, you know, back when, when, these, when there wasn't like these, uh, you know, corporate guys that have no idea of what's, what music's all about that are put in place in these record companies, yeah. CEOs, you know. And we walked in there and we, it was right after La Bamba. And uh, we brought a, a tape of some stuff that we had done uh, in the early years, uh, the folklorico years. Played it for him, and he heard it, and he said, "Wow!" Because you know, at that point, they, the record company didn't even know about about uh, the early years. And we played it for him. And he said, "Man, this this is incredible." And then we said, "Lenny, you know, this is what we would like to do for our next record." And he said, he looked at us, and his eyes didn't actually get like you know like saucers, but he did say, "You really want to do this, huh?" And we said, "Yep." And he said, all right, you go and make the record you want to make. Let me figure out the rest. And then that's when all this, this <laughs> people started writing about, you know, uh, commercial suicide. <laughs> but that's what, the only thing we could do. You know, we could do anything else. We, we couldn't just, you know, make another rock record. We, we definitely were going to make it La Bamba number two. And we didn't. We, we decided to take all that incredible focus, all of that attention, and direct it to something that really meant something to us. It was the music of our culture. Oh, yeah, and it's an, and it's an immortal album. I it's mean, It's an amazing record. I love that record. Yeah, it was like, that, that's almost like the album where it seemed like you guys would do now. Yeah, that's why it was perceived as absolutely insane. That is what we've always done. Yeah. We've always done things that, that, uh, that are unpredictable. And it's not for, for, for you know, shock value. Mm-hmm. It, it's not because we want to do things just to make people, you know, uh, you know, confuse people. I mean, we made Kiko because it felt right. And I don't know how it happens. We managed to, after all these years, 35 years this November, uh, to uh, you know, maintain that, that sense of enthusiasm and that sense of discovery. I don't know how it happened. What is next for Los Lobos after uh, you know you complete the tour for Town in the City? We're just finishing up our contract with uh, Hollywood Records. The last record we're going to do is actually going to be a children's record, of, of uh, which is, uh, here we go again, you know, <laughs> Lobos doing something that nobody ever expects them to do. We're doing a children's record of uh, Disney songs. We had done this thing a long time ago that Hal Wilner put together. It was called Stay Awake. It was a bunch of artists doing Disney songs, and we did um, uh, the Monkey Song. And we did it with Haranas, and we did it with Guitarron, and, we, and it was real, real cool. We, uh, we said, uh, we'd like to do a children's record. So they said, uh, but uh, what about if you do all Disney songs? We thought about it for a little bit, and we said, well, we did the thing with Stay Awake. That was cool, Monkey Song. That was great. Any other artist would probably be as hokey and shit, you know? But if Los Lobos take, take that on, it's going to be something that no one's going to be able to expect. And I really don't know what to expect at this point, but it's going to be real cool. Los Lobos' coolness factor is still so high. I mean, you have Jamie Hernandez from Love and Rockets, the classic, doing the art for Town in the City. Man, you guys always come back with something hot. I love it, man. 
you yeah, know. Yeah, great. Well, thank you. Can always rely on Los Lobos to keep, you know, us Chicanos cooler than shit. That means a lot. Thanks. I, I appreciate it. So, let me just tell you a real quick story. Every time I put on How Will the Wolf Survive, it reminds me of being 16, going to Ensenada, and getting into so much trouble, man. But <laughs> we listened to that all the way from, from McFarland all the way to across the border, stayed there for about a week, and came back. Man, I got into so much trouble over there, and I have f- such fond memories. Where's McFarland? <laughs> McFarland is seven miles south of Delano. So we're right right here in the in the heart of the valley. In the valley. Man, okay, just, all right. I, I'm sure you guys have heard plenty of stuff like that. I'll let you go, man. Thank you so much okay. for, for taking the time. Come Keep, by and say hi. Yeah, absolutely, brother. I definitely will. Thank okay. you very much. Okay, you're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yes, thank you, Louis Perez from Los Lobos, for spending time with the Bakotunes podcast and Moss Magazine. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Moss and Bakotopia magazines, available free all over Bakersfield. Subscribe to the Bakotunes podcast for free on your iPod. Just visit iTunes and find Bakotunes. All right, here's a classic Los Lobos track that will burn holes in your chanclas. Memories of being 16 and dancing with wild women in Ensenada, Mexico, Cantinas. Here's Don't Worry Baby off the classical How Will the Wolf Survive? Oh yeah, happy anniversary of Los Lobos celebrating 35 years together this November of 07. Peace. Standing there by the window, staring out at the night. You got so many troubles on your nervous mind. But don't worry, baby, it's gonna work out fine. You heard the sound of footsteps. Still across the floor He picked up the receiver He didn't know what for Then you saw a shadow Slipping through the door Yeah. Uh-huh.